Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We have principal of Hidrock Properties, A.B. Hittery, here with us today. A.B., it's a pleasure having you on. Thank you again for doing this. Thank really you for appreciate it. Me. And before we get into business, give us a little sense of your background. So where are you from and why did you get into commercial real estate in the first place? So I'm from uh, Brooklyn, New York. I still live in Brooklyn, New York, so it's been 44 years now. I uh, got into real estate because I um, tried a few other things after I came out of college. Uh, my family always dabbled around real estate. My dad had bought some real estate. I um, had a small company, so I uh, decided to go into it um, around the year 2000. So it's been 20, a long time. Great. 23 years now. Amazing. And what do you think you'd be doing career-wise if not commercial real estate? Great question. Um, haven't given it that much thought, but I think that skills and business translate relatively easily. So, you know, whatever it is, if, Within you're, business. if you have a certain... Uh, uh, motivation, um, work ethic, whatever it is you choose to do, you could be successful at. Hundred so percent. Don't know for sure, but. Hundred percent. And you've always had this, this like natural um, urge for business. Always had this natural skill set for business. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I had in uh, elementary school, probably sixth or seventh grade. Um, I published a newspaper, the okay. Hittery, Hittery Herald. Okay. Um, came out. Uh, used to charge, I think, 25 cents for it. Okay. And I had my friends write articles. And my dad bought me a computer and a, a printer, which wasn't so common back in <laughs> right. 1980s. Um, and I had distributed those throughout the school. Very nice. Uh, teachers bought them. And it was something. So, yeah, I guess I was in business at a very young age. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. And so you graduated with honors from Yeshiva University in, in 98. Um, what were some of your kind of major takeaways from the college experience? And was it specific knowledge or was it like a, like a network of professionals, a, a connection network? Um, I would say that it's just, it's the general experience, right? It's, it's being in school, going to class, um, and then you have dead time between class when you're dorming somewhere, which it was the first time I really spent considerable time away from home. Right from home yeah. um, you got to fill that time. And I spent that time picking up hobbies, studying. I remember going back to, to my room between classes and just opening up the textbook. And, and I mean, it sounds crazy, but I would I prepare, do homework. I, I was always ready for a test. It sort of, maybe it taught me that work ethic. It developed curiosity. Mm. I was learning uh, things I'd never learned before. Um, so it was the college experience, I think, that helped prepare me for sort of the next stage of my life. Got it. So what were some of your interests back in college that kind of um, you applied to your career today? And my interest in college were probably very different than what they are today. In, Understood. In, in college, it was um, about spending time with friends. It was, uh, I used to go to the gym a lot and I played a lot of basketball and, uh, um, you know, we'd hang out late at night. And uh, it's it's the, um, it's those things that happened between the classes that right. you sort of remember. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to say that there was a specific trait Understood. that came into, I mean, I guess I could point to some of the core. I did. It was a business school that I went to. Um, I took classes in uh, management and accounting and finance and statistics and those things. I guess they're still part of me and right. they carry forward with me as I make decisions in business every day. Understood. And so, walk us through what Hidrock Properties is. Um, what's your kind of long-term vision for this company? So, Hidrock is a real estate development company. Um, started technically uh, back in the '80s by my dad. Um, he ran it. Uh, owning probably about 10 to 15 properties up and down the East Coast for mm -hmm. about 15 years. Um, and then in uh, the year 2000, came into it and uh, we became more of a value-add company. Right. So as opposed to sort of buying real estate, um, leasing it up and collecting rent checks, more of 
um, getting hands our off. hands very dirty. Uh, first property we purchased was a office building on 36th Street, okay. uh, 65 West 36th Street, 12-story office building. We renovated the lobby. We put in new elevators. We put a new roof. And then as tenants expired, we had actually at the time a company called Urban Fetch was in three stories. Mm. And they were sort of the precursor to uh, DoorDash and, and the, the stuff that today is ubiquitous. But um, it was a company that if you wanted to order on the Internet was just right. getting popular. If you wanted to order a candy bar, you go online to uh, Urban Fetch, order your candy bar. They would send somebody to go get it and deliver it to you. Wow. Anyway, it was a tech company that didn't last very yeah. long, but they were in three floors and they used to have motorcycles coming in and out of the building through the lobby. So like that, they were paying $10 a square foot for their office space. Mm. We had to, when we redid the lobby, get that tenant out, redo those floors, re-tenant the, the building yeah. and we re-tenanted all 12 floors. It was a great story, but that's the kind of thing that Hit Rock did then and continues to do now. Uh, renovations, ground up construction, uh, we take complicated real estate deals mm. and we try to make them simple. Understood. Right around the same time, we uh, purchased an office building in Reading, Pennsylvania. Okay. It was 120,000 square feet, beautiful building. I'd say I learned a lot of lessons mm. from uh, buying that building. Um, Reading, Pennsylvania is a, a small town. It was an old manufacturing town. Mm. Uh, had a lot of retail and a few office buildings. The downtown was probably um, 10 office buildings. And I remember when we found uh, this building for sale, uh, spent weeks down in Reading analyzing the market, mm. going through all 10 buildings, the, the occupancy, the vacancy factor, what the rents were, all that. And it was a pretty simple business plan. We said, great, the rents in this building back in 2001 averaged $7 a square foot. Mm. The market was 12. The building was 70% occupied. We said, this is going to be easy. We're going to rent. We're going to fix up the building a little right. bit, and we're going to rent up the thirty percent. We're going to get the rents to twelve bucks, and we're right. going to sell it. We didn't know until we bought it that there just wasn't a the supply demand metric didn't work in yeah. Reading, Pennsylvania. There was just so much more office space than was needed. Anytime a tenant expired in the market, they went to all the buildings and they said, "We don't care that they're asking rent is twelve dollars right. a square foot. We'll pay seven. Who wants us?" and it was a feeding frenzy. Every building wanted that tenant because mm. there just was nobody else in the market. Right. So we learned relatively quickly that uh, renting wasn't a market for us. And there's only so much you can learn by spending a few weeks in a market. Right. Um, and that really um, uh, helped us realize that we should be focused on just very few markets and markets that we know very well. And Understood. that's when we turned our focus to New York City. Understood. Got it. And so describe your experience um, working with working at Hidrock closely with your brothers, um, Eddie and Steven, and how do you delegate certain tasks um, amongst each other? So Eddie, Steven, and I are super close, as we are with our dad. Um, we, besides from working together, we live very closely right. together. And in the office, we think pretty similarly, so we don't get into too many disagreements. Right. Um, when we do have a disagreement, then we talk it out. And generally, there's a um, prevailing sense of what the right thing to do mm. is once you talk something out enough and you play all the, right. the pros and cons. But we also delineated our roles. So I'm a little bit I'm more focused on the um, uh, investors, lenders, um, making sure that we have the capital that we need to buy real estate and to do the work that we want to do to the real estate. Eddie's more focused on the acquisition side of the business and the development mm -hmm. side, ground up construction, and Stephen much more on operations, so on renovations, on management. So we each have our lanes, 
and we tend to uh, defer to each other based on you know whatever it is that we focus on that we specialize got in. it so you recognize each other's strengths and weaknesses and kind of get delegate tasks based on each other's preferences exactly understood and how does your father play a role in the mediation and direction of strategy nowadays? So mediation is not really the word because we very rarely have an issue okay. that we need to uh, mediate it. Okay. Um, but dad's involved to just make sure that we're making good decisions. Uh, he has a perspective that we don't have. Yes, right. we've been in the business for, let's say, each one of us 20 to 25 years. But dad's been in the business for 40, 40 to 50 years. Yeah. And, and it brings a different perspective, uh, different relationships different approach to people i right. think when you're you know that you know the next generation right. so we're constantly um uh, speaking with that and having meetings Great. and picking strategy together amazing and and what if um what do you do when you disagree on the core of the strategy so i mean the only example i could think of is um where to invest right right core strategy um, I mentioned the story back in 2000, 2001 in Reading, Pennsylvania. We decided to focus on New York City. Right. So that's a core strategy yeah. change that, that, we, that we decided. Um, more recently, we had a decision to make when the pandemic hit New York. And New York was um, suffering both on the fundamentals, mm -hmm. rents and supply demand, but also on the capital markets. They really weren't interested investors and lenders who were looking right. to do stuff in New York City. So we had a decision. Where are we going to invest next? Um, so I can't say, you know, did we disagree? No, but we had a lot of different ideas. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of hot markets that real estate companies from New York were focused on. Right. You could say um, different Florida markets, Miami, Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville, um, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Charlotte, right. um, Raleigh, North Carolina. There was uh, Austin, Texas, right? There were, there were a lot so of different places. So you're bouncing off ideas. So we bounced off ideas. Right. We talked about it. Uh, and we ended up landing on Miami mm. as a... Um, a second market for us uh, for obvious reasons, right? It's very easy to go back and forth. A right. lot of New Yorkers are in Miami. We had, we had a network there of real estate professionals that we already knew who right. were shuttling back and forth <clears throat> and we were very familiar with the market. So uh, we were able just to talk out that idea together as, as, a, as a group, Amazing. as partners, as family. Um, and we decided to, to move into Miami as a second market. Perfect. Okay, great. And can you give us a valuable lesson that your father taught you um, about business, about real estate that you carry with you to this day? Yeah, it was, um, I remember early on, we had a uh, issue with, I think it was a vendor. Mm. And I knew the vendor was wrong. And my dad said, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. Mm. It just, you know, sometimes you have an issue and you just need to move on. Find a solution. Um, you may lose a few dollars in the short term by, let's say, paying the vendor more than you agreed to pay. Right. Um, but in the long term, it always makes sense to keep a good name, um, to not focus on not focus on small issues that are going to bog you down. Think about the big picture. Mm. So that's something that I that I carry with me whenever we have something going on in the office. Where even though we think we're we're right, right. Um, sometimes it just pays to say, okay, there's another side to the story. We're just going to say, move okay, yeah. um, and and move on. Understood. Okay. Perfect. And how would you recommend um, someone, let's say they're a young professional in high school or college right now, um, how do they build a strong foundational knowledge of real estate investment and development? Where should they start? So the, the best thing to do is to get internships hmm. at large real estate firms that right. do a lot of things. Um, companies like CBRE and Newmark and JLL and, and uh, CNW. I mean, those are firms that uh, touch almost every part of uh, the real estate business. Mm -hmm. And 
when you can, if you can try to get an internship there, you get to develop relationships with really important people right. and you get to touch all the different parts of the business. People say, uh, I want to go into real estate. Young, young people say, well, what do you want to do in real estate? Do you want to be in the management side of the yeah. business? You want to be the development side, acquisition side, the financing side, the leasing side. There's so many different parts right. and you, it's not fair to ask a young person, you know, what do you want to do? Because they don't know. They no They're idea. just reading it in a book. So right. go ahead, get a job, get an internship, bounce around a little bit when you're younger, see what you really like, and then you could really chart a path. So you think the key when you're young is exposure to all the different sides so that you know you kind of figure out what you like and what you don't like. Right. It's not it's not only figuring out what you like, it's also developing relationships in each right. one of those. Because very often um, you're going to be as successful as the people you meet yeah. in, in a particular um, uh, area of real definitely. estate. Your network is your net worth. Yeah, definitely. Um, and what would you suggest for a young professor, a commercial real estate professional looking to break into such really widely renowned firms such as Hidrock? So at, at Hidrock, we're a small firm. Okay. We're, we're only 15 people. Um, we're only going to hire people that are amazing at what they do. Okay. Um, we, we're, we're not able, we don't have the resources to train people. Mm -hmm. So we're going to look um, at the firms, the right. bigger firms, that have people that maybe um, uh, aren't advance, advancing fast enough, um, or people really talented that think they can make a lot more money working mm. for a smaller firm than for a larger firm. Okay. And we'll work with, with uh, people like that. Um, so it's important to us that somebody comes in already a master of their trade. 100%. Um, and we understand that that means we're gonna have to pay a little bit more yep. money, and, and we're not gonna hire people that are you know, right out of college, but it's worked for us. So Understood. That, that's what we'd recommend. So you're able to offer them more of an upside. Yeah. Okay. Understood. And how can someone go about um, finding their niche within commercial real estate? Their specialty? Yeah. The, I mean, the best way to find your niche is what I said earlier is to uh, start working with another firm and uh, uh, start working within the different niches that are out there. Um, and then you see if you're good at it, if you right. like it, if you meet the right people, and then you can continue to develop within okay. that niche. Perfect. Got it. And um, as far as real estate development, how do you identify potential development opportunities? The, the best way is to really get to know an area. I'll give you a, um, I'll give you two examples um, that I think would be helpful. Um, one of them, uh, property we purchased, I'm going to say 2012, uh, at the World Trade Center, mm. 133 Greenwich Street. Um, at the time we were buying it, the World Trade Center complex was not yet rebuilt. Mm. Uh, it took a long time to get it rebuilt. If I remember correctly at the time, One World Trade was only partially um, back up. Maybe it was two thirds constructed. Uh, seven World Trade was finished. Um, three World Trade was not even conceived. Four World Trade was not conceived. Mm. Even the uh, the the uh, pools, the memorial pools were not open. Right. The museum wasn't open yet. So. Uh, at the time, there was a property for sale, 133 Greenwich Street, and uh, my brother Eddie, who was in, in charge of acquisition, was the one who saw it first right. and went down to the site, and he had to have vision, right? If you were there at the time, actually, Five World Trade Center, which right now is not rebuilt, at the time was still there, mm. and it needed to be demolished okay. because it was so badly damaged um, in 9-11. In, uh, so you had Five World Trade is right across the street from this property. So when you went down to see this property, you saw a building that was uh, needed to come down right in front of it. 
a building three blocks away, one world trade that wasn't even finished yet. You had no tourists, no business people, no residents, no nothing. Mm. But, you know, my brother saw it first. And then, you know, we saw we had vision for this area right. to say one day the World Trade Center is going to be rebuilt better than it ever was before. And we were able to buy that property and invest um, there's a $120 million project where we built a hotel because we were confident about what was going to come. Mm. So that's story number one. Okay. Uh, story number two was more recently, a couple of years ago, when we were diversifying out of New York City um, after the pandemic hit, we started looking in Miami. Mm. A lot of great neighborhoods in Miami. And again, we um, uh, identified Wynwood as a great uh, area for us. Right. For those New Yorkers watching, Wynwood is, I'd say, Arts a little bit like uh, Williamsburg, yeah. let's say, um, here in New York. But Wynwood was identified as the next frontier in Miami probably about 10 to 15 years ago. And you had investors coming in, buying up warehouses, uh, artists were coming in. Mm. And for 10 years, it really stagnated. People bought, right. but not a lot happened. So um, when we started looking a couple of years ago, in Wynwood, there were other real estate companies saying, ah, Wynwood is never going to get there. Mm. It's been 10 years. Everybody's been talking about it. Right. But it's, for the most part, stagnant at this point. But we looked at it with fresh perspective. We said, okay, it took 10 years. But in the last two years is when a lot has been going on. Mm. And we were able to identify seven or eight different properties that were planned many years ago that were actually starting construction then. Okay. And we said, you know what? Give it two more years, and these projects are going to be finishing. Residents are going to be moving in. Office tenants are going to be moving in. So Wynwood is a great place to buy, and it's better off buying now than it was 10 years ago. Mm. So we bought um, two properties in Wynwood two years ago, and already um, uh, one of them, we just signed the lease for the whole building. Uh, the other one, we're going to be developing a uh, 130-unit uh, residential building. Mm. So both look like they're going to be tremendously successful. Um, I think you need to have that vision and a great understanding right. of an area to be able to identify something that's going to really take off and Understood. Be a great investment. And do you think some of your best investments have been your contrarian views where everyone kind of is going this way and you're going in the other direction? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say I, our, uh, another great investment for us was 966th Avenue, okay. corner of 35th Street. Yeah. And it seems like an obvious investment because it's the corner of 35th and 6th, right across from Macy's. Yeah. But the timing was a contrarian timing. It was 2009, market collapsed in 2008. Uh, this was a, uh, we actually couldn't buy the bricks directly. A company out of Italy uh, bought the building in 2007 for $105 million. Mm -hmm. They borrowed $90 million from a um, bank out of France. Um, what we did in 2009 when the market collapsed was we purchased that mortgage. We bought the note okay. uh, for $40 million. Right. Um, and then we foreclosed on yeah. the uh, on the company from from Italy to take title to the to the bricks. Complicated deal, um, but it was contrarian, contrarian because in 2009, um, most investors were saying, now's not the time to buy. Yeah. Yes, it's a discount, but wait, the market's going to get worse. Right. Buy in 2010, buy in 2011. Now's not the time. There were no banks at the time. We pretty much paid all cash for it, $40 million to right. buy it. So yeah, that was another contrarian uh, um, deal. And uh, by the way, it didn't end with uh, the purchase of the note. We ended up, there were office tenants in the building. After we took title, we vacated the building. Right. We renovated floors two through 16 to a hotel. The ground floor, we rearranged, we moved the lobby. Uh, we put a AAA credit in there. Bank United uh, took three floors, basement, ground, and mezzanine. 
Um, and then we took the rooftop, which had all the HVAC equipment and everything else. And we um, we redid all the mechanicals and we put a rooftop bar called Monarch, which mm. is still open today. Yeah. Great, great bar. So that was a great project. Probably took us four to five years all in. Um, project cost was 75 million. We sold it for 132. So Wow, amazing. Yeah. So a lot of people are saying about the current market that it's not a good time to buy. So how do you navigate the current market and how do you approach that with your acquisitions? So it, it's really not a good time to buy in New York. Mm. Um, it's uh, unfortunately, right. right? I live in New York, made a lot of money in New York, love the city. Um, but there's, it, it's just, there's too many headwinds um, in, in New York City. So I agree with the market mm. that it's not the right time. I'll just give you like a few examples. Um, on the uh, residential side, the regulations, while well-intentioned, um, have made it too difficult for developers to make money. Mm. And that's why you don't see new residential buildings going up. Right. Um, and unfortunately, we're not really solving the affordability, affordability crisis because of that. Um, on the office side, it's very difficult to predict what the patterns are going to be of people coming to the office. I yeah. think there's only 50% of individuals coming to the office on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. So who knows what's going to be and what companies are going to need and want. And the economy itself with you know, tech and, and finance all suffering uh, with the higher interest rates. And it's a little difficult to predict on mm. the office side. Um, the hotel side, um, New York is heavily reliant on all aspects of travel. So mm. uh, tourists, very important, obviously. Business people, more important than tourists because they spend more money. They're swiping their corporate card. Right. Um, international travel. Uh, from Europe, very important. From Asia, more important because when they come from Asia, they spend more time and they spend more right. money. Um, groups, um, uh, conventions. We, we, we need to hit on all cil cylinders to be successful on the hotel industry. And... Um, too many of those unknowns. Mm. Are are people going to be traveling from Asia like they used to? Now we have geopolitical issues with uh, China, and I don't right. know that they're going to be spending the money and traveling like they used to. Um, are you going to see the same amount of conventions? Are you going to see, see the same amount of business travel? Difficult to say. So between residential and an office and hotel, all you know, having all these question marks, which by the way affects retail too, because yeah. if there's the people aren't in the city, then they're not really shopping. Right. So very difficult to predict. And then let's say everybody comes back and you start making money again. The political environment is to tax away whatever right. whatever you can make. Unfortunately, again, yeah. for good reason. They want to provide services. But it's at the point where you know 20 to 30% of whatever dollar you create gonna is going to have to go to real estate taxes right. or you know, not, not to say income taxes and things like that too. So there's just no reason to take the risk and invest in New York. You may not make money, and if you do, you're going to give it away anyway. Right. So um, back to your question about the uh, how do you get people to invest. We, we look at other areas where, let's say, I'll speak about Miami because yeah. that's where we're investing. We just purchased our sixth property in Miami in the last two years. Um, Miami has a lot of the same problems from a um, macro level that you see elsewhere, mm. right? Um, who knows what's going to be with office? Yeah. Who knows how that's going to affect retail? Is it going to be as much travel as, as there was in the past? But the one thing that Miami has is uh, positive um, regulations. They're, they're pro-business. And when you're pro-business, businesses want to invest. When they want to invest, they want to hire people. Right. When they want to hire people, people want to move there. So in the end, it ends up being better for the individual right. who could move 
find an apartment that's a little less, less expensive, get a well-paying job because businesses are successful. So we see that and we say, despite what's going on in the world right. and with that, despite what's going on in the country, Miami is a place that you want to be because people are moving to yeah, Miami yeah. for good reason. Understood. And um, how do you navigate um, the world of politics if it's out of your control? Because a lot of these things are kind of government intervention. So how do you kind of go through that? So um, we keep um, close relations with various government officials. Got it. Uh, we actually have uh, government affairs consultants okay. that we're on retainer with us. So uh, we're able to um, often get um, have a good feel for what's being discussed Great. and what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, whenever there's something that we're struggling with that we think um, if only somebody in the government were aware of what's going on, uh, like we could get stopped on a development project that when we're stopped, nobody's getting paid, yeah. right? None of the workers are getting paid. No, yeah. So it's not good for anybody to stop a project, yeah. but we're able to pick up the phone and call um, you know, the right people in the right places to say, is there anything you can do here? Yeah. This project was stopped, um, maybe for a good reason that was resolved, maybe for a bad reason that, or for the incorrect reason and come back and check out and see that we did everything right. But let's get this project going again so that we could keep everybody employed and keep, keep the paid. banks making money on yeah. we're paying them interest. And, you know, we want to keep things going. And so does the city. So yeah. we make sure to stay in touch and we have great relationships with various government Got officials, it. regardless of, of uh, party affiliation. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Everybody wants, wants what's best for the city. And so do we. Got it. Perfect. Um, and can you share any um, current or upcoming unconventional projects that you're working on and how do they deviate from your general development strategy? Yeah, I'd say the most unconventional project we have is 35 West 36th Street. Um, we're working with a um, phenomenal brokerage firm um, run by Michael Rudder okay. um, to, to sell office condos. Uh, it was an office building that we purchased a few years back. We had it rented for a lot of years. And then we, um, we thought it would make sense to try something a little different and to sell the building in pieces instead of as a whole. Right. Um, we, we saw that um, office buildings like 35 West 36th Street were worth somewhere between six and $700 per square foot right. a couple of years ago. And um, we felt we could sell um, individual office units for a lot more than that. Uh, so we said, all right, we'll, we'll do that. And that's something that we started with Michael Rogers' help. We've sold out about half the building so far. It's something you don't see every day in the real yeah, estate no. business. It happens on occasion. And it's, um, it, it's interesting because there are certain users of space that would much prefer to own their yeah, space. Yeah, exactly then rent it. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, doctors, right? Doctors, they're, uh, they have equipment, heavy equipment yeah. sometimes, expensive equipment. They don't want to be moving around yeah. offices every time rents go up, so they'd rather buy. Yeah. Very predictable business model. They know how much they're going to make every yeah. year. They have their patients, so they can borrow the money based on that. Um, foreign um, uh, businesses, uh, in a lot of places outside of the United States, it's common to buy your office space. Mm. So although it's not common here in New York, often when you have a foreign business come into New York and need office space, they'd much rather buy because that's what they do right. um, outside. And outside. then the last yeah. one is uh, nonprofits. Nonprofits often have a, um, uh, a business model that is fairly predictable. They know how much money they're going to have uh, coming in. But more importantly, um, they're not going to pay real estate taxes. They're exempt from real estate right. taxes. So often um, when you price uh, a, a, a space for sale, you do the analysis and it's fairly similar to the rent somebody would pay. Mm. So you take their interest cost, you take their real estate taxes, 
You take their maintenance that they're going to need to pay, right? The doorman, electric, things like that. And it usually adds up approximately to the rent. Now remove real estate taxes. Yeah, it's a big and now all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense yeah. to buy. So we have a lot of nonprofits interested. So that's an interesting uh, project yeah. that we have going on now with selling units. Great. That's very cool. Um, and how much of this business comes down to understanding people and how much of it comes down to understanding the asset? Would you say it's an even mix between these two things that makes a good uh, developer and investor? Yeah, it's, it's an even mix, but I'd throw a third thing in there and it's, and it's timing. Okay. Um, yeah. you, you could buy the same building. I told you the story before about the company in Italy right. that paid $105 million for 966th right. Avenue. Um, they lost all their money and we bought the same exact building um, just 18 months later yeah. and we made $50 million. Right. So um, it's, uh, I think it's very important to have a feel for timing, equally as important as knowing bricks, knowing neighborhood, knowing people. Um, you have to have a very good sense for when's the right time to be transacting. Understood. And how do you recognize an opportunity you want to go big on? Is it based on intuition or is it based on facts? To go big is based more on intuition. Okay. Yeah, you really yeah, you have to have an, uh, a sense of, like I told you before about um, the World Trade Center not right. being built yet, but knowing that it's going to happen have at to some have that point. Vision. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, the... Uh, Winwood and knowing that stuff is going to be happening. I guess we looked at data too at the time. Okay, these are the six projects. They right. were financed. You start to see cranes going up. Um, but a, a lot of it is based on on intuition, uh, knowing. I mean, I'll give you another example of one that that we uh, that I think we based a little bit more on intuition than data. We purchased the old Pavilion movie theater in mm. Park Slope. Okay. Um, at the time we purchased it, it is well, the Pavilion movie theater is in a spectacular location um right by prospect park on a circle on a corner and we bought it because we said one day this is going to be a spectacular site to either develop right. or renovate or put something else in there but at the time we bought it there was a movie theater paying rent on a 16-year lease and the return given the rental was relatively low. It didn't mm. really make sense to buy it and hold it for 16 years, making that kind yeah. of money. But we used our intuition um, to say this movie theater is not going to be around 16 years. Yeah. And and you know what what gave us that feeling? Uh, we did research. We saw that the movie theater was not one of the big firms that had uh, 50, 100 theaters around the country. It was a company that um, actually sold movie projectors, digital movie projectors, right. and they they were using the pavilion more as a showroom than as a movie theater. So mm. yes, they were selling tickets and people were coming in and they were making money, but we knew their primary goal wasn't that. Their mm. primary goal was to sell projectors. Okay. So we bought that with the intuition that they'll never make it 16 years. Either they'll take a buyout, they'll need something from us, they'll want to go early, whatever it is. And then about three years later, um, they their business wasn't uh, doing as well, I guess, as they needed it to. They needed some money. They wanted to terminate the lease, and we uh, were able to work out a deal to to move Perfect. them out, and to uh, we were going to redevelop the, the property. Okay, very interesting. And um, so, who do you learn from at this point in your career? I learn from everybody. Um, I uh, I'm a lifelong learner. Um, I definitely learn from my dad. Definitely learn from my brothers. Uh, we have a lot of investors. Right. I learn from investors, speaking to them all the time. Right. A lot of them are very successful in the various businesses that they run. So learning from them. Um, read a lot, watch podcasts, 
um, all the major uh, uh, real estate publications, the general uh, uh, publications, the Wall Street Journal and the Times and right. uh, the, the different magazines and the, the television shows, whatever it is, lifelong learner, very interested, always curious, and I could learn from anybody. That's awesome. And Abe, I have my final question to wrap it up. What advice would you give your 22-year-old self about life, business, and relationships? Put your nose down and work hard. Uh, be honest. Um, always be straight with people. Um, and nothing substitutes for work ethic, um, which was true when I, when I was 22 years yeah. old. But it's probably truer today because fewer and fewer people actually have the work Definitely. the work ethic. So if you have the work ethic and you're willing to see things through and sit and think and um, you know just do hard work, uh, you'll be successful. 100%. Avi, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. There's Thanks so much value me. for young professionals watching this that they can apply to their career moving forward. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Thanks again. for having me. Great. <laughs>